It's happening again. Welcome to Work Cookie, a CBOC podcast. As we broadcast around the world, get bite-sized morsels and tidbits from our industrial organizational psychologists, other experts, and the latest research on the workplace to boost your organization's effectiveness. Sign up now at CBOC.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from our experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? Hello, this is Dr. Jeremy Lookaball, workplace communication and negotiation coach, as well as industrial organizational psychology consultant. In addition to cboc.com that you just heard, you can also visit my website at termboot.com. Also on the panel today, we have Sarah Smith-Berry of Frigo Consulting. Sarah is a psychometrician, veteran advocate, consultant, and modern stoic. Also, we have Tom Bradshaw, voice and speech coach, and a damn good actor at that. He is the leading voice and speech coach for the industrial organizational psychology community. Great. Well, thank you very much, Jeremy, and welcome once again, everybody. Uh, it's nice to see a good crowd here and that people are starting to slowly trickle in. Uh, Sarah, why don't we actually start with you? Um, our topic today are the how-tos of effective corporate learning and development. And we're just looking for some perspectives from IO's psychology people that are scattered in the room. We may have some HR people as well. So, you know, a really interesting topic and really sort of a starting point about IO's and how they interact with corporations. So do you want to share some of uh, your experiences with us? Um, all right. So interestingly enough, my background in learning and development and got my graduate degree in IO. So I did a lot of training and development, um, which is really interesting uh, because there's a lot of overs in that area, right? And it's also like a high risk environment. So literally lives are at stake whether or not we do well in creating and making sure that our users of certain state and how to use them properly and that our ends are certified and qualified in the, you know, the correct KSAs and be able to do their jobs effectively. Um, and I loved it. I loved the fact that every day when I woke up and I was developing training, that I was having that level of impact. But as you can imagine, it's amount of stress, um, you know, because it's, it, it, it was very risky um, if you made a week. Um, so coming from that environment and then to a graduate IO degree and learning what I did about adult learning here, um, I was actually surprised um, to, to figure out that the military actually does have their ducks in a row when it's training and development. They just tend to use some psychological tricks that maybe are not as conducive to the civilian sector um, in order to get people to learn more rapidly. Right? Um, but one of the things that I noticed that was incredibly impactful was the idea of checks on learning. So that was something that was um, very useful when we were developing, especially scenario-based training. Um, trainings and development where making sure that individuals had the aptitude to be on in the correct way in NEO. Um, and that was really helpful to understand and know moving to the civilian side of things because you can implement checks on learning in ways. A lot of organizations tend to use a methodology now for interning. Um, I believe that that's better for follow-up training in my mind. I think that should be used as an adjunct to additional training methodologies most time um, because I don't think that we can necessarily replace uh, because usually when information is delivered by an individual comes with anecdotes and things and things that help people to uh, contextual knowledge. That's so I know that there's going to be a lot of people in the room with me here and probably some experts on here from them, um, but I've always seen e-learning as more that, ad, uh, you know, the adjunctive process to validating whether or not the KS are being met and retained. That's another thing. Time. I'm sure we've all taken a class and then been asked about some of the subject matter maybe a year, two years after the fact. Um, and then we kind of draw a blank, right? So making sure those KSAs are carried throughout our experience and developed into actual applicable, actionable at the end of the day. Um, I can tell that I'm tangents, so I'd like to give some other people kind of weigh in, but that's where I would start. Well, thank you very much for that. And um, Jeremy, let me go to you next, because uh, it was really interesting to hear Sarah talk about, you know, before, and I think you and I have had the same experience too, where even before we 
understood the principles of teaching and constructing programs, uh, you know, we were kind of doing that and already sort of developing skills. But you and I have also shared that experience of building programs in the post-secondary world. So what kind of, you know, advice or sort of insights did you gain from your training that helped you prepare to, in the, you know, in the real business world, uh, develop programs for individuals? I think the most important thing is keeping things from being a check the box and from becoming just conceptual. Think back, everyone here, everyone that's listening, think back to really any, any conference that you went to, any training that you went to that you can even remember and put down what you've used, what you remember from it, who spoke what were the key takeaways and how it's improved your life? Might be, a if anyone can, please come, please come to the stage and share what it was, if anyone can. Or if anyone can, maybe clap. You guys can, I can see your claps. Can anyone remember all that very important detailed stuff from a training? I don't see, I don't see any claps. I don't see any, I got one. I got two, good. I got three, four. Okay, so good. So that's four. So that's uh, quick math. Not a whole lot <laughs> with my quick math, maybe a third. So oftentimes a lot of trainings are simply you go to a training, it's either a good or a bad movie, and then you're done. There's not a whole lot of takeaway. There's not a whole lot of action and not a whole lot of follow-up. My perspective, oh, this is why I love these, these rooms. This is my, my perspective on, on, on learning and development, T&D, took a major uh, seismic shift when I heard Sarah speak because I'd never, I've never looked at it in the way of action preparedness in terms of being able to act, you know, thinking about the military, right? Being able to adapt and act almost second nature, the level of role playing that's done, the level of in corporate training, it's almost, it's so much as check the box. What is it? Uh, 80-20? 80% uh, of training dollars and training time and everything is just completely lost and corporate and goes out the window. That's why a lot of companies are so reluctant to put, put, put money into a training budget. And sometimes I can't blame them because trainings just aren't done well, which is why we have this room. Trainings just aren't done to... Well, Tom, let me ask you something. I just got to know. How is, is my volume okay, Tom? Yes, your volume's great. Great. I just got a side message. I just wanted to make sure. All right. Um, so I think in terms of uh, the, the, the bottom line is, is how do you keep things from being a check the box? Number one is you have to have it, make it, keep it an initiative from the top down. And you have to have some kind of a follow-up. And the things like Sarah was saying, you have to ha incorporate adult learning theory. One of the most important thing is to keep things from being a check the box is have supervisor involvement. Supervisor involvement accounts for about 70% of the effectiveness of, of any training. It's that supervisor, supervisor follow-up. In any training that I do, I incorporate a supervisor uh, portion of it where a supervisor actually has to come. To, I shouldn't say any training. In many of the trainings that I've done, because sometimes it's not feasible, uh, where supervisors actually come. Um, I created a, it was a nine week corporate training and I have a, a, an entire day, an entire uh, day. Um, there, there was four hours at a pop where the supervisors would actually come with their employees and learn with their employees and work because it, it allowed them to work together in a capacity that wasn't just putting out fires. And it allowed them to, there were also activities to get them to work better together, but supervisor involvement. The next thing is, You've got to have people that understand the concepts of training. So this is part three to make it not a check the box. You can't have people that are coming in just doing a training that they, the same training that they've been doing for the past 10 years and thinking it works and doing trainings because I, I learned this or I saw this and it must work because I saw it kind of like, well, if it's on the internet, it must be true. That kind of thing. It has to be adapted. Every training has to be adapted to the specific company to the specific, uh, at least level, but these things have to be taken into consideration in terms of what are these trainings being tailored to, so that they make they make sense. 
And they also have to be get rid of the PowerPoints. People don't learn anything from PowerPoints. People, if you learn, if you're taking information from a PowerPoint, you're learning information so that you can absorb it. Barely much else. If you if you have the training so much that you're minimizing, all right, you can keep your PowerPoints, but minimize the PowerPoints and engage. Think about adult learning theory with discussion, with examples, with small groups, with action items, with different types of activities that allow people to you to, to take the new concepts and apply them in different ways. Yes, it takes more time, but would you rather have a training and just have it and waste a couple hours or would you rather spend more time and actually have it work and turn learning into action and behavior that learning into action that like like sarah was saying tom back to you well thanks very much for that jeremy and you know you're absolutely right because i don't know if anyone you know especially for people in the audience if you haven't looked at uh, Gar Reynolds' book presentations, and and if you're using um, slides or visuals of any type, uh, you're behind the curve. Uh, you really need to take a look at his book, and especially what he says about content on your slides. Uh, if you've got content up there, guess what? They're reading the content. They're not listening to you. So the focus is now on your slides, not on you. And that, for the most part, damages the learning process. Sarah, I see your hand up. Welcome back. Really quick, I just wanted to kind of piggyback on what Jeremy was talking about when it comes to um, synthesizing what is learned into practical application and getting a chance to actually practice that. Um, in actuality, I believe that 80% of the time should be spent on that. And most training programs, it's, it's really more like 10% and it's an afterthought, right? Um, so one of the things that I did was um, when I was working with geospatial technical engineers um, and revamping their training program, I came in and I noticed that they were being taught to create different products, okay? And I'm trying to create, keep this pretty simple, but keep really high level. Um, they were being taught to create different kinds of products, okay, using a system. And there was no why behind it. There was no big picture behind it. But that was by design in their mind. Um, they wanted to be able to create the product on demand as quickly as possible, essentially turning these engineers into Kinkos, okay? If anyone remembers Kinkos, <laughs> a little time travel for you. Um, so... The reason I bring that up is when I went in and I redid this, this training and development, I walked in and I said, okay, what's the biggest complaint that we're getting from engineers? Okay. So I did by asking questions. I started by asking questions. And that's really the first thing as IOs that we're taught is to always come at problems or, or situations with that inquisitive lens, right? As from a social scientist perspective, we're going to be curious. And so the first step was really to ask questions from the engineers themselves, like, what is it that you're missing? And the, by and large, the response that I got was that the training was effective while the training was going on, and they felt confident while the training was going. But as soon as the training stopped, and they got to their duty station or their job location, and they were asked to create these products, because the environment was different, because the system was slightly different, they were unable to do it. They couldn't pull back into their memory because they hadn't applied that technical skill to any sort of scenario at all. So I decided that I was going to create scenario-based objectives, real-world scenario-based objectives for these engineers. But what I did was I put a twist on it. So I made it humorous. So rather than creating real-world training that was hey, I want you to create this product for this general or this commander or whatever, I would say, okay, I want you to create a three-dimensional fly-through, but I want you to do it of a shopping mall that you create. And I want to make sure that you have Macy's and Target and JCPenney. And I have these engineers looking at me like a crazy person, right? But here's the thing. Because it came out of left field and it was still using those technical abilities, guess what? They remembered it. So when they got to their final duty station and they were asked to create a three-dimensional fly-through with the you know materials that they were given, the data that they were given, but, oh yeah, that was that silly just do in the middle of Baghdad with a Macy's just dropped in the middle of the desert. It's 
throwing curveballs is really effective in training and development because the human brain gets bored after like two minutes. I'm sure some of you are bored listening to me right now. You have to keep it spicy. So whenever you're creating training, whenever you're trying to engage humans, every two minutes, shock them, get their attention back. Um, because really that's about how often you're going to have to do it. So that's just another little tidbit in there. So two things, keep it scenario based and two, throw some shock and awe factor in there and keep their attention. Really good insight there. Cause yeah, focus can, can go away so quickly. Uh, Lorena and Linda, and welcome to the stage. Uh, Lorena, you're up first. Uh, you want to unmute your mic and share your thoughts with us. Hi. Yes. Can everyone hear me? I just want to make sure my yeah, you're coming th- AirPods are working. You're coming through fine. Perfectly. All right. Um, I think it's so interesting that you guys are discussing about this topic because um, so I'm currently a student at California Baptist University. And in our classes, we're really trying to integrate the 70-20-10 model or rule. And what's funny is that Sarah brings up uh, how important it is for individuals or employees to have as much training, but more so hands-on training so they are able to experience Uh, whatever it is that they're learning in those training and then applying it to their jobs and work. And what's interesting is in class, uh, I have a class that only consists of students presenting. And what's funny is that um, the presentations that are overlooked are more so the ones that include a lot of text in the presentations. A lot of people get bored because there's just a lot of text on there. There's not so much uh, to engage with um, in that sense. And so it's interesting that the most successful presentations that we've been having are those that involve class participation, whether it be everyone standing up, whether it be doing a little activity while the presenter is presenting. Those are the most memorable and most um, useful presentations and also the information that is presented. Um, for all of us to apply in our classes. I can honestly remember all the ones that were um, much more engaging and also as discussed in class, um, they were able to help us as students to learn and to apply the information we've learned into our real lives and into our jobs. So I think it's really interesting that you guys are bringing that up. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. And, you know, I agree 100 percent where, you know, especially in in the world that I exist in, where I'm working with professional speakers and trainers, interactive is always much better. But then there's some interesting room dynamics that you have to look at, too, because people will sit in certain locations, uh, whether, you know, depending on how interactive they want to be in some training. Linda Ann, you've had your hand up for a while. Why don't we go to you? Good morning, everyone. Um, I really enjoyed the the discussion between um, Jeremy and Sarah this morning because I think they bring up some really valid, um, important points in the approach to learning. You know, one of the things that I taught seventh grade for for a long time, and um, one of the things I used to say about that was I had to be, and it's a challenge. <laughs> so I had I always said that I had to be just this much crazier than they are. And I used to go ahead and I would stand up. I was taught science. I would stand on the lab tables and walk around the classroom. And they never saw that before. And it they had to look at me when I was doing it. And so just those little things that make a difference in how you get their attention and, and how they connect to you as the presenter are, are really important. I think the other thing too that's that and Jerry may touched on this a little bit is that when you're going into a corporation um, a lot of times they decide they have a need for a certain kind of training but they haven't gone beyond that in other words what's the actual change they're looking for and do they have space in their structure for the implementation of that change sometimes people go to a training And they go back to their meetings or they go back to whatever processes they are typically involved in and they try to make, try to implement their training, but there's so much pushback in the structure, it dies. And so I think it's important for companies before they spend a lot of money on the training to really identify the the change they're looking for, but 
how is that going to be implemented and received within the organization? And are they creating the space for that to happen? And how is that going to be championed and facilitated through the process and then ultimately evaluated and improved? So that's my start. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great start, Linda. And, you know, I've experienced that where, you know, working in post-secondary, uh, you know, they put us through training, which they had paid a lot of money for, but there was no follow-up. The follow-up was basically, okay, you've had the training, don't mess up. And it took about three weeks before somebody messed up. And, it, you know, all the money they spent and the way that the training was delivered, it was just a waste of time. On that note, Jeremy, let's go to you. Yeah, I wanted to share if there's a, there's two guides. They're free guides that I put together quite a while ago um, on cboc.com. If anyone goes to open resources and then shop, there's two guides that I have. One is 10 proven training and workshop tactics that turn learning into behavior change. And the other one is seven management and supervisor training components, components proven to build trust, change behavior and drive performance. They're free if anyone wants to get those. I think it's something like 35 pages in all uh, between the two of them. If you go to cbock.com, open resources, and then uh, there's another tab that says shop under under resources. But they're free. They are there. I like them. I also want to mention, I had I had a conversation with, with, with Lorena recently. And so for Brittany, is Brittany still here? Brittany's still here, yes. For Brittany and uh, Patty, Patricia, this is the Lorena that I connected you with. Just an FYI, it's the same one. I don't know if you guys have connected yet. Um, but w- watch out for, for Lorena. She is one of the, the coolest, the brightest up-and-coming IOs. Uh, every now and then I just get, get floored and wild. And I'm, I've been floored and wild by a lot of you that are uh, here in the audience too. So um, connect with Lorena if, if you can. Um, you know, let's, let's grow our IO networks together. I guarantee it'll be a, a tremendous, tremendous conversation. So, uh, Lorena, not meant to embarrass you out in the public here, but maybe, maybe so. But definitely worth saying. I had such a great conversation. That's all I got, Tom. Go for it. <laughs> well, thanks, Jeremy. Uh, but let me let me throw something at you because you know, once again, as somebody who works with professional speakers and coaches and looks at their training, you know, there's a lot of people out there. And I've gone through, you know, I've, I've sat in a room for an hour and a half with someone doing a presentation. It was supposed to be a learning opportunity. It was fun. And I got out of work for an hour and a half. I learned nothing. And I don't think anybody in that room carried, you know, with them any of that training. But one of the real issues is, is getting that focus or attention of an audience, even from the start. And, you know, a lot of people sort of go in with the mentality of, I've got a really important message that they need to hear. And while that might be true, it really sort of is taking a one-sided view of communication. And to commu- you, know, you really need to communicate with your audience, whether it's a one-on-one training or if it's in a large group. And you know, we often don't ask the question, what is it they need to hear? You know, and for me, that's always one of the ways that you can really get that attention or focus of the audience. But what are some other techniques to really sort of start in the right place? And Jeremy is, oh, there you are, Jeremy, down on the bottom now. And you're flashing your mic. Are you, can you hear us or is your mic gone dead? Yeah, thank you. Sorry, I think something happened with my Wi-Fi, so I had to go to my cell connection, pop back in. Tom, sorry about that, but do me a favor. (laughs) Give me another shot at it. Sure. So uh, I'll make this a reader digest version. Uh, when we start to work with a with a group, whether it's an individual or a large group, we really need to get their focus and attention, you know, or they're just going to be, you know, passers by during the work we're doing. So how do we start off on the right foot to get people's focus so that the training has a chance of actually reaching them? You mean for the training, uh, are you talking about like any kind of training or classroom training? Are you talking about on the job training? How do we stop, stop their scroll kind of thing? Yeah. And I think it goes through all of those. I mean, anytime we're speaking to another individual or a group of individuals, uh, we need to get their focus so that our message gets across, but that can be a challenge in itself. So how do we, from, from the word go, 
get their focus and attention on us so that the training has an opportunity and even a chance to actually reach them. Top of head, there's a couple of things. For it, utilize silence. Silence gives people a time, a, a chance to, to think. And when you look at different personalities, silence is really good. And, and by this, I mean, you're up there, uh, either you're doing on the job or you're in, you're in front of a group. They're expecting you to talk and talk and talk, and they're expecting you to take things in and learn. So the first thing um, that you wanted that I would suggest is tell them you're not we're not here together for you to take in and absorb information. You're not here to you're not I would say you're not here. Think of it this way. You're not here to learn. You're here to teach. And then silence and let that sink in. And then you can explain you're here. So think about it like this. When you're learning things today, put it into your own life examples into your own words. And I want you to go home and I want you to teach someone else. Or I want you to teach someone else in the workplace. It's called three-person teaching. It's also a tactic that's really good if, if you're an organization and you have limited capacity for a training room, for example. Have them, have everyone in that training uh, choose a learning partner. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's some, maybe it's their supervisor. And what they do is they learn the concepts during a particular training. And then their, their goal, their job is to go and spend time teaching someone else. You get more bang for your buck because now you can teach other people. Plus you're getting that information to, to stick and they put it in their own examples into their own workplace. I'm sorry, their own. Yes. I mean, workplace. And by that, I mean, sometimes a lot of times you have organizations where you have a lot of different silos, uh, especially in the hospitality industry. Um, but it, it can really be anywhere, but they're doing a lot of different jobs. So that's one way, because right away when you, when you tell them that they're going to be more at attention because if they don't take something in and recall something, they can, that's okay, right? Everyone says, oh, I can just miss this or I can just go to sleep. But if their goal is to be a good teacher to other people, people uh, the other thing is, again, use silence. When you ask a question, use silence. When you state an impactful point, use silence. When you give an impactful example, use silence. It's going to do different things for different people, and they're usually all good. For those who are more contemplative and require more processing time, and we are all we all know those people or are those people. It allows people to process, to think about things in a critical way, to try to beat up your point. And when they try to beat up your point, it means they have to understand it in order to beat it up. So now they're understanding better. Other people are going to want. All right, quick, let's keep going. So there's other people who don't really need processing time, but just want to get through it. They might speak up. And, and when they speak up, they're going to say something that is on their mind, which is going to increase and, and create dialogue. So there's different types of things, uh, things that silence can really do that help in a particular interaction. I'm going to give an, I'm going to give a I'm going to give a story here in terms of how you can even turn the most mundane job into um, something that people really care about, even those. If it's if it's a mundane job and people don't even want to be doing the work, but here this is an example, and this is why it's so important to you know stop the scroll, to get them to really think about it. Here's a, here's a conversation. I'm going to give this one example, and then I'm going to turn it over back to you, Tom. I was doing a, uh, a, a train the trainer. I've created several train the trainer programs, and I was doing a trainer trainer with somebody at a at a golf course, a really ritzy golf course. And their job was to train other people that are coming in for summer jobs who don't want to be there, who maybe aren't getting paid that well, and who are just required to get a summer job, right? Maybe their parents told them they had to, or for whatever reason. So the job is the job was to um, you know landscape around um, some of the the, the the putting greens and whatnot, and, and the sand and the sand dunes for the for the golf course. I played the part of somebody who didn't want to do this job. I played the part of somebody who did not want to mow a lawn, um, manicure the greens, uh, run a leaf blower. I, and I played the, the part of somebody who just didn't want to be there at all. And the person I was training had to get me 
to train the trainer, right? So it's a little bit of a paradox. They had to get me to want to do the job and want to do the job well. So we start out this role play conversation and we'll just call this person, Steve, and I'll play myself, Jeremy. And I play the part again of, you know, hourly worker didn't want to be there. So Steve starts out. So what do you like to do? He's, he's, he's trying. And I said, uh, I don't like to do anything. Would you like to be outside? No, I like to be uh, alone at home all the time. So he's, you know, probably sweating now. How do I get you to want to be outside all day and do this work? And he says, oh, okay. So he st finally starts to get it. And he uses all these great techniques. I won't get into them now because it'll take too long. Um, some, something to the effect of, uh, it sounds like you have something at home that, that you like doing. And I, I played the part and I said, yeah, I like, and I made it as wild and crazy as I could. I like to, I have a shop in my basement, I told him, and I like to make butterflies out of pieces of scrap metal. I'm, I make butterflies. I have a scrap metal butterfly collection as a hobby. That's all I like to do. So by the end, by the end, this took him about a half hour to get there, but he got there. By the end of our interaction, he got me to picture blowing the leaves out of the sand with a with a leaf blower and how those would mimic the but the beautiful scrap metal butterflies that I that I told him that I made as a hobby so that I would really start to get into the job and it was an enormous an enormously effective way that he worked me playing the role of somebody totally disinterested totally uh un you know being unapproachable to him being difficult and he got me to picture something about that job that had something to do with what i loved and it was very very effective so there's always 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 a way and if training seems so difficult somewhere sometimes believe me people have the same difficulties in training but somebody somewhere has figured it out we just got to figure out we just got to find what creative way did they think of how did somebody at some point in history solve the same problem that we're having? And how can we make that even better? Tom? Good insight, Jeremy. Uh, Linda Ann and Lorena, your hands are up. Uh, Linda Ann, let's go to you first. Yeah, I, um, I love that example. And my comment is not going to be on corporate learning and training, but that is a perfect example of one of the challenges that organizations and managers are facing today. And what was done in that individual instance was you gave or whomever gave that worker a purpose, right? It connected the worker to a purpose and that created an engaged employee. And that's what we need to get our managers to do. That's the key. That's the problem that, that organizations are facing today and retention and all those kinds of things. But that is a perfect example of that situation. Thank you very much for that. Lorena, over to you. Hi. Yeah, it's just um, bouncing off of what Linda Ann said. Um, I love how this work situation started to transform and become a personal situation for uh, the individual. And it's interesting that the more personal things are, the more we're able to connect. And it it's Funny how I, I think about this quote uh, by Simon Sinek, and he says, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And why I tie this into this in, to this um, topic is because the more personal, the more related people are able to feel in terms of like the training or in terms of the presentation, they're able to grasp information so that they can apply it themselves and also feel that what they're doing is for a purpose, not only for the organization, but more so for themselves as well. Thank you very much for that. Sarah. Hi, real quick. So whenever we have these discussions, I always give out like my little hacks or whatever that I hope that some of you will try. One of the things that I do whenever I have to give a training presentation or anything like that is I start off the conversation focusing on my audience. 
Um, it's a really quick way, like Lorena mentioned, to make it personal. So by asking questions, they they have to respond to you. Not everyone will respond. But funnily enough, by doing this, you can also pick out in the group who the, and I hate to say this, this sounds terrible, but the alphas or the leaders of the group are. And I say that in the most non-judgmental way, the people who are going to take the mic, okay? You figure out who they are in the room. And you make them work for you. You make them accountable to you. And I know that that sounds a little bit manipulative and it is, but whenever you're doing a training, you have to get buy-in from everyone in the room incredibly quickly. And the easiest way to do that is by social influence. So I used to have to walk into rooms where I was briefing. I'm not kidding. Like I've briefed a two-star general in my past. So I had to walk into a room, me being a young baby faced woman, right. And get the attention of really powerful men. And the only way that I was able to do that was by taking an interest in their problem or situation, and then identifying who that key is in the room and getting them on my side. Once I had done that, the training would go incredibly smoothly because I would a I would be able to piggy off of that person to regain engagement of the entire group. Um, so that's my hack for everybody. Try that, see how it works for you. It doesn't have to be incredibly direct as I'm describing it, but when you are briefing or, or addressing or training a group of individuals, find that one individual that seems enthusiastic about what you're doing and allow them to contribute to your process and almost co-teach with you because they've already developed trust within people in that room. And you're going to be your, your messaging is much more likely to, to cross people are going to start responding and opening up. And that just creates a safe environment, a psychologically safe environment where people feel like they can speak up and, and voice their opinions and experiences and concerns. And that's really how you take training from death by PowerPoint to an engaged situation without having to beg for engagement or without having to qualify on an individual personal basis before you get people to buy in. Great insight there, Sarah. But let me now take it out of the, the room and into the organization because I've, I've done training where, you know, we gathered in a room, we did a lot of exercises, we created something, and then a month later, we came back for session two. And we all had to be sort of updated. We all had to be reminded where we were. And, you know, it would have been highly effective if we had, you know, maybe had two or three days to a week at the most between training sessions. And really, I'm not sure if that was a fault of the trainer or if that was the fault of the organization. So how do we get organizational buy-in to not only present the information and do the training, but do it in such a way that it's going to have the most impact. Tom, one of my favorite, I'm just going to jump in real quick. One of my favorite tools to use for the, what you're describing is a tool called Mentimeter. Can, can I get a sign of claps for anybody who's used Mentimeter? Roxanne, cool. Um, I use Mentimeter in almost every single one of my speaking engagements, training sessions, anything. It doesn't matter the size or scope of the organization. The reason I do this is two reasons. One, it creates slides that are interactive where we talked about death by PowerPoint. It's not fun. But two, I'm also able to collect real-time data and get real-time insights that I can use later to further develop my trainings in the future and to answer any questions that may come out of that meeting. And here's the kicker, Tom. PowerPoints should not, in my mind, be more than a reference tool. And at the end of any presentation that has slides involved, those slides should be shared with every single person in attendance because that gives them that reference point, that bookmark, that point of reference. If they are not able to catch you up to speed before your next engagement, they're not well-built slides. Um, and I, one thing I love about Mentimeter is when you collect that real-time data and those real-time insights, you can package them up into a PDF report and send them out in the same way. And organizations really like that because then they're able to show proof of value from a meeting. One meeting, they have evidence, proof of value, insights. It's all packaged up nice and neat, even pretty graphics. Love it. 
and people who weren't involved are able to see what you discussed and what kind of conclusions you came to. So for anyone who hasn't used Mentimeter or tools that are similar to Mentimeter, I encourage you to start in, you know, investing some time and getting comfortable using them. So it's not enough to just, again, KSAs, it's not enough to just understand how the tool works and play with it on your own. Actually use it, call someone on Zoom, get on there, pull it up and actually demo it with someone because you'll be able to out your own process. And eventually once you get good at it, it makes you look like you know how to run a meeting like crazy and you're really relying on real-time data to guide the conversation which is it, it really is the best way well let me let me sort of go on that a little bit sarah and and i'll throw this to to anybody on the stage or in the audience but you know i w when i'm doing training myself it's incredibly effective to have that material in the room that people can you know uh use as they're doing the training but one of the most important things is to make sure that they have material to take with them. You know, not only does it look good to the organization, but it gives those people who have participated a reference material to go back and look at again. So how important is that and how do you create it? Jeremy, over to you. Jeremy, your hand was up, but your mic is muted. Oh, okay. Thanks, Tom. Um, so Linda and I was going to say Linda Ann and, and Lorena, your hands are still up. I didn't know if they were up from previously, um, but if you want to keep them up, please keep them up and uh, continue in. I, so I'm going. I'm going to throw in a different a different perspective. I agree. Yes, there, there should be something to reference. I completely agree with uh, what Sarah was saying. It should be really a, a reference. PowerPoint should be used minimally, almost like an outline. And those PowerPoints can be, yes, printed out and handed out. And that's what people should be able to take their notes on if they, if they wish. And that's what people, so, but I'll, I'll say in terms of effectiveness, recall is always better than re revisiting or redoing. In terms of how we learn, how our brains work, it is so much more effective. For example, if you read two pages of a book, it is much more effective to stop, write down everything you can remember from those two pages rather than read them again. It's, it's exponential. Don't, uh, the benefit, even if awkward and awkward silence, and even do this on, yes, virtual training, Zoom trainings, if you're doing in like an in-person training, some of the people avoid situations because they think it's going to be awkward, but they miss the extreme value. Don't forget that people can still write and that taking 10 to 15 minutes to write can be more effective than your entire five hour training. I have done so many times where at the beginning, so I would have, you know, multiple day trainings that will, will span either, um, you know, two, 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 four hour days in a week, uh, you know, multiple, one, four hour day, every, every week, whatever it may be. But when I, I would have, you know, classes of, of 10 to even 30 plus people come in and they would return and I would say, all right, everyone blank piece of paper, write down everything you can recall. I would either do it at the end of a session or from our previous session. Use examples if you want, do whatever you need. And I would give them 15 minutes and I would leave the room and I would come back and there's still people writing. Oftentimes I would just do a quick poll with everyone and people say, you know, we, we need more time. The average was somewhere around 20, 20 to 25 minutes. People wanted to continue writing. People felt good about it. I even used, uh, I, had, I had this thing, you know, make index cards your best friends. I would do an index card and hand out an index card anonymously. All right, everyone give your feedback, rate it on how effective it was on a scale of one to 10 and write down your comments. The comments were, my hand really hurts. I haven't done this since high school, but it was very effective. I haven't had the opportunity to do that in years. The average was an eight that I got. I remember, I remember this very specifically because I took all these index cards from multiple, multiple training. The average was an eight on effectiveness. Now, anyone, I'll challenge anyone, whether you're listening to this when it comes up on the podcast or now, 
to tell me when's the when's the last time you've done a training and you think everyone would rate that as an eight or when you were able to rate a, a training an eight. But that is very, very powerful to have even a section of a training to be rated as an eight. The other thing that can be very effective is to have people in, in, a, in a particular training write a future email to themselves and then they answer it later on in the training or the next time. But how will I incorporate what's going to be used today? You write a future email to yourself uh, and they'll sit down. And yes, it can be awkward silence. But after the first minute, it's no longer awkward silence because people are no longer concentrating on the environment in the room, on what you're doing. They're concentrating on what's in their mind. And for once in a very, very, very long time, they have quiet thinking time. For some people, it's the only quiet thinking time that they're really ever going to get in our fast-paced environments. Even if you're on a Zoom meeting, would I recommend doing this? Yes. Yes. Call me crazy. Yes. You know what? People can turn their cameras off for 10 minutes and come back in 10 minutes, and it works. I've done this with graduate classes so many times where people have to, you know, we turn, turn, our, turn your cameras off, go and do some research, come back and share what you have. It's not, it's not as awkward because people are turning their mics and their cameras off. You're, main, you're staying there in case anyone has questions. But it's just very effective. And so I challenge everyone, do think along these lines. Think differently about how things can be done differently, but still effective. And it doesn't have to be the standard. It's just like leading a conversation. Once you're effectively leading a conversation, you're golden. Once you're effectively leading a training with that confidence, you're golden. So yes, give people the information, give people uh, whatever, an outline, PowerPoint notes so that they can take their notes. Give them something, something that they can take away. Because if you do it the right way, believe me, people are going to keep it on the corner of their desk for a while. And they're going to continue to revisit it. Revisit it because you did a kick-ass job at making everyone feel like they were involved in the learning process that it's going to help them and that it's going to allow them to have their tomorrows be better than their todays. Tom, over to you. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, and some great points there. Uh, Sarah, I want to turn to you for a second because we are talking about effectiveness. And one of the key areas for me is knowing your audience. Because as, as I go from, you know, corporate group to corporate group, or even, you know, individual speakers, they are different. They're all unique. But you've had this experience of going from the military and doing training there to taking it to the civilian world and doing training there. So how important was it to realize the differences between those two groups? And was it something that, you know, innately you just sort of kind of knew at the start or were there some lessons that, that needed to be learned? Tom, if I'm honest, most of my lessons were learned when I was in the military because I'm most I'm pretty informal as a person, um, and I can say stuff that gets my butt in trouble a lot. Um, and so, a lot of the times when I was doing my training in the military, it would come off as not formal enough. Um, but I would get by named requested to come back and retrain the next year or their next set of engineers. So, obviously, I was doing something right. Um, I'm not everyone's cup of tea and I'm going to tell everyone in this room, no one is ever going to be ever everyone's cup of tea. So you're never going to be a perfect presenter. You're never going to be a perfect trainer. You're never going to be a perfect IO. So throw those things out the window and have fun with it. And that's, that's really my approach. And I think that's why I did so well in both environments, because I was able to look at it from the point of what are we trying to accomplish by doing this? Why are, why are we doing this? Are we wasting our time or is there a purpose behind what, why we're spending our hour here together? If there is, yes, there's the purpose. Okay, great. Then can I get buy-in from everyone in the room that we are all in fact needing to do this? Yes. Okay. Moving forward. Now we can actually get down to knowledge, skills, and abilities. Okay. Let's talk about everyone in the room. What's your level of skill? What's your level of skill? Give me a story about when you use that skill. Give me a story about when you use that skill. Once that's passed, okay, now this is how we're going to build on those skills. This is how we're going to be able to take those skills to the next level using a different system, or this is how we're going to be able to make you more effective. So it's really about empowering the employee at the end of the day and giving them back ownership into their own development. Um, so when it comes to knowing your audience, it's, it really, I don't know, this is, again, 
every presenter has their own style. Um, but for myself, I think that it's just coming across authentically um, has always gotten me where I need to go. Um, I, I, I caution people to um, maybe not always take the informal approach because again, sometimes you're going to get a door slammed in your face for not being professional enough or uh, buttoned up enough or whatever. Um, but again, are you going to adapt what it is that you're doing for the sake of vanity or are you going to adapt what you're doing for the sake of effectiveness? And at the end of the day, in my book, effectiveness always wins. So um, yeah, I, I, I would say that when I got out of the military, one of the things that I did have to learn how to do was because I was a technical trainer specifically and, and dealing with geospatial engineers and dealing with these very intelligent people, right? Um, and then coming out into the civilian sector and not saying that civilian tasks are not challenging. I'm not saying that at all. There's some that are far more, but there's a very clear delineation between technical training and like learning and development for say, um, you know, your, your rote empathy training or something like that within an organization. There's a big difference. And my vernacular or the words that I chose to use when I was in the military versus when I was conversing with civilians had to change. Um, and that just took time. And to be honest with you, I still struggle with it from time to time. Um, I'm still very active within the community. So a lot of our lingo still spells over. Um, but at the end of the day, are you delivering a message that is valuable? Is it helping someone to be better than they were before? And do you enjoy doing it? So I, I think those are the, the key things to remember in any sort of learning environment. You also talked about being authentic, which for some people is a challenge. Uh, what advice, if any, can you give on being your authentic self? All I can say to that is that comes with age, Tom, I think. Um, and it comes with experience and learning that, you're again, you're not everyone's cup of tea but you're here once and I'm getting a little existential on you now, but we all are on this planet one time and our level of impact is our own. Um, and you cannot control anyone else's reaction to you. The only thing that you can control is your own behavior and whether or not you behaved the way that you thought was appropriate for you. Um, so I, I, whenever someone has issues with authenticity I like to make sure that they're asking themselves the question of, is this what you really want? Um, and if no, why are you compromising? So um, I know imposter syndrome is something we all deal with. Um, and there is some solidarity in the fact that we all deal with it. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just, do you want to wake up every morning knowing that you were yourself or do you want to wake up every morning and waste all of that gorgeous energy pretending so that's what i would say to that. <laughs> well well said linda ann over to you i just have a couple of comments um and that's one when i do a presentation or a training or anything like that one of the things that I communicate is that I can't really teach anyone anything. I can only provide the opportunity to learn. And what you want to do is make them motivated to pick up whatever it is that you're offering to them. Um, and, and just to piggyback a little bit on what Jeremy said about how he approaches the, the training and giving them space and time to, to synthesize. That's one of the things that I love about e-learning for myself is that I can utilize all the different um, senses, whether I can have it, you know, give, read whatever the text is to me. I can be reading it at the same time. I can be taking notes, which is really powerful. And then I can pause it and actually take the time to integrate whatever that concept is into my own knowledge paradigm. And that's where my real learning occurs is when I can figure out how does it fit into what I already know and make it applicable, that's where my real learning occurs. And so to be able to integrate that somehow into an in-person training and, and mesh it with other opportunities for them, I think really pro provides the ideal 
um, learning situation. Thank you very much for that. Um, Jeremy, over to you. A quick quote that I think of often and I have for years and years and years that goes, I believe, to Sarah's and Linda Ann's point. It's by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And uh, it goes, do not be too timid and squeamish about your actions. All life is an experiment. The more experiments you make, the better. And I have said that to myself so many times. Life is all life is an experiment. The more experiments you make, the better. And it allows me, it has allowed me to do quite a, quite a bit of things and all with a little bit more of confidence. The, the quote finishes, I think that's the most important part. And I want to read it again. Do not be too timid about your, or do not be too timid and squeamish about your actions. All life is an experiment. The more experiments you make, the better. The, the latter part of it is, what if they are a little coarse and you may get your coat soiled or torn? What if you fail? and get fairly rolled in the dirt once or twice. Up again, you shall never be so afraid of a tumble. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Tom, over to you. Well, thanks, Jeremy. And I'm, I'm going to throw it right back to you because I see we've got about a minute left before we're to the top of the hour. Uh, do you want to do a little sort of, you know, summarization of what we've covered today and, uh, and when are we going to be joining uh, together again for this room? Thank you, Tom. We will meet again for this room uh, next week. Everyone will get a notice. We'll probably, I think what we're going to do is uh, we might start on a LinkedIn Live starting on two weeks from now. But on the 9th, December 9th, looks like we'll still be back here in Deep Dive. We'll keep you updated with that. So same time, same place. What we've covered today, I, I'm, I'm always so floored. I've been extra floored today. By the conversation and really the things that have been suggested and talked about and eye-opening as even for for those of us who have been in this realm for a long time to be i've been you know edge of my seat i can hear my you guys can probably hear it on the audio my cheek my my seat keeps cracking because i keep being on the edge of my seat there's so much uh value here and so much insight from people with such diverse backgrounds and such diverse personalities. It is so interesting. We've talked about different ways that organizations can incorporate uh, effective learning. And we've talked about ways that don't, that do not cost added money. They don't cost uh, added resources. In many cases, they may cost added money in labor hours, but you know, if you're going to train, you know, if it's worth doing, is it not worth doing? Well, um, in terms of uh, resources, it, the resources is, is a lot. It's mental energy, cognitive energy, and the other resources, willpower, and the ability to take new perspectives and really understand that all life is an experiment. And the more experiments you make, the better. The only thing is that we are IOs here. So we don't often, we shy away from making experiments in the workplace. Because we're IOs, we make experiments outside of the workplace and then we, we incorporate them into the workplace because we like to do things right the first time in organizations rather than rely on uh, throwing, you know, throwing the dice, flipping a coin. So we look to what has worked in the past. And I can verify that the things that I've heard today are verified from my extensive research in adult learning theory uh and the, the training and development studies that these are things that are set to work and that have been tried and true and by the experiments that are made and that i encourage everyone to make it's actually using what we already know about the science of all this and make it take and taking the opportunity to get out of our own way and use these in organizations we Thanks. are one minute past the hour, so we're going to close <laughs> on. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Tom, you're fantastic. Tom, please give us a uh, an out here. Thank you very much, Jeremy. A great show, everybody. Uh, Jeremy and Sarah, thank you very much for all the work you do and for hosting these rooms. Uh, the insights you share are incredible. Linda Ann, always such a pleasure to have you on the stage and the insights you bring. Lorena, pleasure to meet you. You are a brilliant young I.O. I hope you come back to the room and join us once again on stage. To everybody in the audience, it is an absolute pleasure to have you join us every single week. And with that, Jeremy, 
let's close the room. In five, four, three, two, and one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Cookie, a Seabock podcast. Don't forget to sign up at seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? Don't forget to check out our corporate, career boost, recruiter, and even student memberships at seabock.com.